0: It's Carcon Carnage. Let's meet in the car. It's Carcon Carnage. And now here's the star of our show, James Hetfield. I thought the days of like five opening acts would, would end. I'm asking you as a as, <laughs> as a, a certified punk rock hero. Will we ever see that, or is that just the way of the world?
1: Well, you know, it's turned into mostly festivals, and uh, you know, I, I, you know, when I interview bands, you can get them complaining about festivals, but they don't like to too much because they still want to be invited to it. Of course. But everything has become like more than five. It's become like ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty bands, and it's it's all a blur to me. But uh, when Weasel toured, we had in our contract we couldn't have more than three bands, so. which
0: seems appropriate yeah
1: even when we weren't a known band yet that's why we we actually would play in front of like two or three people like <laughs> tours and had to pay for it ourselves because we had these rules that weren't acceptable when you were not a when you were a nothing band but that was a big one couldn't so, go on after 10 p.m and no more than three bands
0: that right there that's Jughead this is Carcon yeah. Carney I'm James Van Uh we're recording at lunchtime it's pouring outside you rode your bike I could have picked you up but you rode your bike <laughs> I like my bike <laughs> I, I appreciate that. We're at King's Euros, uh, with the sign in front that says "What is it? Royally Delicious," which we'll. Oh, Roy- that... it
1: does say "Royally Delicious." Yeah, Euros hot dog salads, beef burgers, chicken.
0: This beef is such burgers, a Chicago chicken. place. The northwest side of the city. We're at was this Foster and Mil- Foster in Milwaukee. Yes. Yeah, yeah. This is such a Chicago place. My, uh, I'm sorry, but, but my my uh, friend of
1: actor friend of mine likes to put words together when there's no proper grammar, so it's like a gyro's hot, Euros hot dog salad, beef, burger, chicken sandwich.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, really exciting, there, there's real-life Chicago paramedic action happening right outside our window as we're recording today.
1: Yeah, I actually befriended, uh, I've been living in the area for about 25 years, and I befriended a, a, a retired fireman that used to hang out at the Dunkin' Donuts at like two or three in the morning, so yeah, I've learned a lot about
0: firemen. In the area. <laughs> so we'll start eating. We, we got Euros, which yeah. is what you have to do when you go to King's Euros. Yeah. Um, John Jughead Pearson, you probably, if you're if you're watching or if you're listening, you probably best know him from his days in Screeching Weasel. And those days were many. Those days were decades with Screeching Weasel. Yep. And I want to talk about Screeching Weasel, and I want to talk about... When the wheels came off so to speak mm-hmm. uh but i also want to talk about your podcast we're both podcasters you've been doing this for over five years 10 years holy shit!
1: yeah this is my uh 10 year
0: anniversary this year 10 years yeah. so legit Jug- yeah yeah wow jughead's basement triple digit episodes this is your vocation at this point
1: it is yeah yeah it is it has become my part-time job
0: Hopefully, full time job eventually. <laughs> it, it, it's a great side hustle, if nothing else. Yeah,
1: yeah, I, and a hustle is is the correct word because it is. when you run a Patreon and stuff like that, you are hustling, hustling all the time. You you are your
0: own machine. So. Let's let's start eating. Yeah, and we'll talk about the podcast. I, I'm always excited to talk to other podcasters because mm-hmm. no one does no one does it the same way. We all have True. different approaches, and I gotta say, your podcast sounds good. Like oh, a, you. you're a musician, I get it, but like sonically, you and your guests always sound really fucking good.
1: Oh, thanks a lot. And we don't even use a lot of the t- a lot of people, like friends of mine. Uh, I have a friend from the Partially Examined Life, which is like a famous philosophy podcast, mm-hmm. like millions and downloads. And he always says, "Well, should I send you the file? You know, like the sound file?" I'm like, "No, I, I, I kind of, yeah, good." I, I'm good. But I think I spend. I think my thing is I spend a lot of time and since I did theater and radio. Uh, I spend a lot of time on the editing out ums and i learn i learn a person's patterns and what words they repeat and i cut things out and i raise and lower amplify things see i so. want to talk
0: about that though i got to a point a couple years in where the ums and the awkward pauses just seemed like too much work like for the for the return mm-hmm. like for the amount of work you're doing on the editing what is that return in terms of listening and Is it even worth it, or is it just the cost of a conversation? Is it just the price of doing business and having an interview?
1: Well, for me, having been like a playwright and also writing for the radio, I do, in my mind, acknowledge the difference between someone who's going to be watching the video and filling those pauses with facial expressions and then trying to listen to it purely as audio and going, is that going to fulfill the audience like it does a video audience? And it's it's a guesstimation on my part, mm-hmm. but I like doing it. I think it, it helps keep the drama that you see in video,
0: but in radio. So, all right, let, let's open up the food. The, yeah, these yeah. are heavy. This is like holding it. This, this is a. It's like holding a dwarf star in my hand. <laughs> this is a
1: classic uh, place here. Um, I mean, if you want to talk a little bit about it, I don't know yeah, a lot yeah. about it. I try to actually do some studying, and all you can find is stuff on Yelp and. People hated it. Like they, there's uh, <laughs> one person that, and I, I could, I, I, trust this because before the, I don't know if they sold it or what, but before the, what is that? Oh, you're looking at that. Before the remodeling, which probably happened during the pandemic. There was a an old Greek guy that was behind the counter, and he would smoke. <laughs> and this guy gave it a one star. I'm surprised he even gave him one star. I don't know if you have to audio, but because he found a cigarette in his euro. Uh, but most of them are it's like a five gift stars. With purchase. Yeah, yeah. Most of them are like five stars, like one of the best places to go for euros. But uh, they stopped being late night. They used to be open to two or three a.m. and now they're only closed at like nine. So it used to be my late night place down can the street. Can riding. I steal some napkins from you? I just oh, I you know. Yeah.
0: I know this is gonna be trouble. Thank sorry, you. It's funny. I was vegetarian. Do for you a use pe- the? I'm sorry. Do you
1: use the? Uh, the Suzuki? Yeah. Do we only have one? No, no. You got one there. So I was
0: the vegetarian, vegetarian for a few years. This was years ago. Yeah one of the first things i had when i bounced back from vegetarianism and re-entered the world of carnivores was gyros like that was one that was one of my cravings was gyros with the tzatziki sauce the onions the tomatoes the pita bread and i think only chicagoans would have that craving
1: i I guess so yeah yeah i i my my funny thing is i i spent six years in japan and people are always i was in osaka which is like uh it's like the sister city to chicago so Mm -hmm. it's a food town so people are always like, well, what did you miss? And I had to really think hard about what I missed because the, the food is there is It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was Mexican food, actually. We're, you know, we have, Chicago, we're blessed with 24 hour like, on almost every corner, there's a 24-hour mom-pa Mexican restaurant.
0: It's, I, I found a taqueria in Rogers Park. There's this stretch between, like, Tui Avenue and Pratt. Where there are like twenty taquerias I don't even know the names, but my new yeah. go-to yeah. is this place. Again, don't know the name, I just know where it is, yeah, exactly. and I know the tacos are like two bucks a piece, and they're amazing. Yep, that's, that's every, you're right. That's everywhere in Chicago. Yeah,
1: I joke. Uh, my girlfriend's from Japan, so she's visiting, and I we'll walk that. We'd walk for like six hours a day. That's kind of our thing, and I'll point out every taco place. I go tacos, and <laughs> it happens a lot. <laughs> so,
0: what made you decide to start podcasting?
1: Um, I actually had a friend who had a podcast. His name is Jeremy Corp. I didn't know about it, but uh, he cornered me on Facebook one time because I did this thing like 11 years ago on Facebook where I was kind of drinking some wine and I was a little toasty. And I said, I'll just, I'll, I'll answer completely honestly for anybody who... Messages of me in the next hour on Facebook ask me anything ask me anything and, and it worked. I mean it was like I, I had so many great questions and I was I was I was completely honest and people would buy me pizzas So like delivery men would show up like during while I was doing this um, And then my friend Jeremy said well, you need to turn this into a podcast So that was that's how it started originally it was supposed to be a live experience but that quickly got more difficult than it was uh, worth doing At that time, yeah, like 10 years ago, it was
0: not very easy to do a live podcast. Well, and I'm sure you found, as I did starting out, there's no blueprint to this. You kind of have to figure all this out Hmm. as you go. The the mechanics of putting together a podcast.
1: Yeah, like I said, I had been doing sound editing for, uh, like I said, I just do like radio shows and stuff like that and fun, you know, many voices. So I had an in on that part of it. Mm Mm-hmm. My podcast also started out, the first five years was, I could only do like one a month because they took, took me about 40 hours to do, because I would interview like full bands, edit it into this, into the record I was studying. Right. So it became like an art, I, I called them art projects. I, that's fair. Yeah.
0: But so even things like, started. understanding the, the distribution of a podcast and how yeah. the different platforms operate and behave and then pricing out different platforms and realizing they all kind of do the same thing but they're different in their own yeah, ways yeah i luckily i said i my, my friend
1: had that right so we had Potomatic, which is not one of the best but i've stuck with it and they do all the placing it into itunes and all the other places so i didn't have to really worry about that i had to do all the mechanics of putting it in all the or the ssn numbers or whatever those I, are is, is there anything <laughs> you wish
0: you had known then that you know now or, or anything you would have approached differently with the knowledge of a decade's worth of podcast experience um
1: well what I realized what I should have known is that people love the spontaneity of podcasts and the longness of it because you can't get away with that in a lot of media because certainly not radio there's producers telling you to edit edit here or you know and keep it to 10 minutes or 5 minutes um my first podcasts were, like I said were art Art projects, and it and they did better actually than it does now. But I found people were even more pleased with just me doing long form question answer, and I didn't have to put all that work I did. I still mm-hmm. do a lot of work on it, but I didn't have to do that 40, 50 hours per episode. So I'm I might have changed that if I had known that. But I really liked doing those in depth uh, things too. If I made more money, I would probably do one of one of those a month.
0: <laughs> For a lot of people, myself included. The hardest part of podcasting is guest booking. It is, mm-hmm. it is the most difficult thing dealing with shifting schedules, reschedules, just dogging people down. I've got to think it's easier for you just because you know so many musicians from touring and just being in that scene. For that's so
1: that's how I get my like like foundation. Is I, go, I have go to people like mm-hmm. Master Genie mm-hmm. and Vapid, and they'll help me get other people. Like, um, but. I, I, I try to state right away, like I'm, Fred Armisen said he would do the show, and now I'm on my second month of, like, sending him messages, and, you know, I have his personal phone number, so I'm, like, really careful not to, I say, hey, I'm my own PR guy, because that, sometimes I would think makes someone go, oh I should probably get <laughs> That's back adorable, here. yeah. head <laughs> on the head, oh, yeah, that's Yeah, all right, so I don't want to be uh, as forceful, but I have to also think of my show, and if I don't keep at him, he'll just disappear into the ether, you know? So well, it is a balance Armisen, of trying
0: to not annoy people for me. That's what I don't like annoying people. It's just to go on a tangent, speaking of Fred Armisen, did Screeching Weasel play with Trenchmouth back in the day?
1: I don't know. I don't think so. We I might mean, have booked them, but I don't think I ever played with Trenchmouth, no. No. And he's friends with a guy I just interviewed, John Ross Bowie, who I was almost even more interested in. Pretty well-known actor, but he was in a band called Egghead. Mm. Um, yeah, out of New York, so he was part of that New York uh, pop punk scene. Um, but he's Fred, friends with Fred. That's how I got Fred. Got it. But Fred knew, like, knew my
0: stuff, so I was really happy about Come that. On, you're Jughead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Euros. Mine is cigarette-free. Yeah, mine and, too, and it's pretty delicious.
1: Yeah, I would say I'm surprised the. Um, all the vegetables on it seem very fresh. Mm-hmm. I think they've changed since their reopening.
0: It is royally delicious. Yeah. It's also early in the day, so <laughs> But this is also like great hangover food. Yeah. yeah that's what that's that's why I'm surprised
1: they're not open late night anymore because mm-hmm. that's what they're I would imagine they got most of their business from people after they've been drinking and dancing and stuff. You know? And
0: to be clear, I ordered us the six inch. Euros. There's a larger size than oh, what we got. Yeah. And this seems like a, a, a dense amount of food.
1: A lot of the reviews said it is one of the largest euros they, mm-hmm. they've gotten.
0: So I, I keep thinking that podcasting in general still isn't at what they call the tipping point. I mean, it's certainly familiar. Podcasting is everywhere. Lots of people are, are throwing their hat in the ring. I still don't think we're at that like, peak moment for podcasting. Do you think we've already crested, or do you think it's still coming?
1: No, I think as we talked about briefly in the Euro shop, it's just when when to me when it starts getting the notice by big corporations and stuff like that is when it starts tipping, and, and that's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it we've we've gone past the point where everybody's doing it now. <laughs> They're not doing it well, but you know, but uh, we are we are at that point. We are at that point where it's going to be. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. Either it's going to mutate into something slightly different or it's going to be more established, Uh, but I'm not sure. I'm worried about it, actually. Well, I definitely see
0: parallels between music, the music industry, and podcasting. I mean, now there's a clear delineation between what we'll call major label podcasts and independent podcasts. Mm, Yeah. Because, like you said, corporations are throwing... Everyone wants to have a branded podcast, some kind of audio expression of what they are. Yeah. And then there are guys like you.
1: Yeah, and like I said, there's even networks of people, like I think Will Farrell is part of a right, a network of, you know, they host a bunch of different podcasts, which I tried it at first to get to be part of one of those, and I was like, I don't even know if it's worth it. I'll just build my own audience, not worry about Podcasting it. Podcasting
0: isn't a team sport, at least not at this point. Yeah. So being part of a team just feels weird. Yeah, yeah. When you're really, doing it in your basement.
1: Yes. I'm, I'm a collaborative person, so... The interviews become very collaborative to mm-hmm. me, but the running the business part of it is really nice to not have to, you know, I schedule when I, when I want, and if someone can't do it, that's fine. I'll reschedule my life around it. You know, it's harder to reschedule a whole team of people. Right. So it's very really easy to for me to grab someone at the last moment, you know, if they need to do it tomorrow, you know.
0: You mentioned how, you know, the long-form podcast or long-form conversations, and that's what people enjoy hearing you do. How much preparation goes into what you do? Because I find this varies wildly from host to host. Well, this has changed too. I mean, I actually basically have, uh, under my category of
1: Jughead's Basement, I have three subcategories. And the most common one now is lo-fi interviews with hi-fi guests, which is the easiest one to do. It's just one-on-one interviews. Mm -hmm. Um, But I usually study for at least three days straight about the person. For real?
0: Yeah. That's an intense amount of work. Yeah.
1: And then I let it, like I tell them in the podcast, I put the notes all over around me, and then I just just trust my mediator instincts and just barely ever look at them. At one point near the end of the podcast, it's probably the only thing I ever edit out, is I'll go and look at all the notes and then make sure I hit the points I wanted to. But I make an effort not to touch, even look at them time it's more like subconscious for me
0: well i and i find yes when you put down notes when you gather your thoughts together the mere act of writing it out makes it easy to just talk about those things yeah. without referring to yeah,
1: yeah i've always been that way like ben uh weasel is obsessive about uh, note uh, lists and note taking he actually keeps his like in the kitchen in the living room like they're everywhere me i write it up and then i i lose it or throw it away <laughs> you know it's for me it's just a mental reminder uh, you
0: mentioned if, Ben. That was a very friendly reference to Ben Weasel. Do you, are you on speaking terms?
1: No, we are. No, we, we had the experience that happens to a lot of bands. And I just talked to Victor from Violent Femmes about this, too, about how he loves the idea of being in the rooms with the other two guys, but business and everything has gotten in the way to make it impossible. And that's kind of, we kind of related on that and almost had some tears together <laughs> because I, you know, I love Ben like a brother, but there's, we just don't get along at all. Like not even a little bit. And you
0: mentioned Dan Vapid, yeah. who's, who's been a guest who I, I find oh, delightful. Oh. Obviously yeah, you Dan's still get great. along with him.
1: Yeah, he's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we get along. We have a side project called the Mopes, which we do occasionally. Um he loves the show, so I have him on a lot. And yeah, no, we've always been. We had a darker period when he rejoined Weasel when uh, me and Ben split up. I thought the band should have just stopped, uh, and we didn't talk for like a year. But then I called and apologized for being angry at him, so we made up.
0: And I'm, I'm sure you were enraged. I mean, you were there at the beginning of Screeching Weasel, and
1: yeah, yeah. He had he had Ben had gone off and done a solo project, and I was like, oh, okay, well that's fine, that's great. Just uh, you know if in our agreement that we made is that if you ever reform the band, I have first refusal. So, and he didn't, he didn't do that. So <laughs> so I was a little pissed at all the people that rejoined the band, <laughs> but like I said, I worked it out with everybody, but him.
0: So, uh, I, I'm a fan of vapids. I think that last album he did mm, not what people might've expected from him, but it's really good. Rapid is a, I hope someday
1: he's good for And I as one, of, not even in just punk, but in music, one of the best pop
0: writers out there. So good. And are singers. You, are you going to the methadones?
1: mm No. I, I don't go to shows much anymore. And now my girlfriend's in from Japan, and we're trying to get back to Japan, so I'm tr- I'm playing it even more mm-hmm. uh, careful.
0: Totally so get it. I don't go out, yeah. Totally get it. And, you know, bands have like four opening acts these days. I mean, who wants yeah, that? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I don't do it.
1: I did the mitochondria show with... Vapid, so I just saw him a little while ago.
0: All right, now, I may have spoken too soon, Jughead. Yeah. Did you eat the whole thing? What? Almost, oh. but wait. Oh. This could be one of mine. I'm a hairy guy, but there is a hair in my food. Oh, I, boy. It could be one of mine. I'm not sure. There. It looks attached uh, to the onion. Know,
1: attached to the onion? That is
0: kind of like your beard here, like half it gray is, and well, half... Well, my, my beard here is not that long, though, yeah. Jughead. I'm not... Well, I would I would be careful, people. Yeah, I'm gonna go with the fries. This may be again See? could be could be mine, hairy guy. Yeah, but I'm
1: going to uh, since we're probably I'm going to save this and ask yeah. uh, my Nanako if she wants a gyro that might have a bit of hair in it.
0: It's better than a cigarette. I mean, <laughs> there's there's protein but yeah, in I, hair. Yeah,
1: when when you said you were gonna be in here, I was like, oh, all right, yep, but. I, I try to I, make
0: I, it convenient. Whenever I do, whenever I do on-site stuff, I try to make it convenient for whoever I'm. Oh yeah, talking
1: yeah, to. yeah. I've been there since the reopening, so I was excited to, to get here. But it's classic for that, known for that. Like, that. I'm, I'm surprised that guy isn't behind the counter. I don't, I didn't know if he was the owner, but he was. He's been there for 25 years behind the counter till like 3 a.m. with a cigarette in his mouth.
0: So, so going back to Screeching Weasel, mm-hmm. mid 1980s. Yeah. What do you remember from those early days of the band like what was it like in the punk scene because it it was very different from what it is now It, it probably looked and felt very different yeah
1: i often talk about the the moment where it must have been like 94 or 95 where it went from like kids kids being teenagers and and 20s 20 year olds uh, you know, working full-time jobs to then make enough money to drive their Malibu across the country, you know, and, and bo- all these shows they booked themselves. Then all of a sudden, I started seeing these younger kids, like, in high school kids, with parents in, like, newly bought vans and trucks and stuff. And I, I was like, oh, this is weird. <laughs> and that, that was honestly where it felt like it had it had changed, where it it didn't feel like... if People were expecting things, whereas... When we started, we didn't expect anything. You know, it was hardcore was all the rage, and we were doing this poppy music, so that we didn't have any chances in our minds to make it. We were just doing what we we loved doing, and then I started seeing all these people that you could tell had that little bit of "we're gonna make it" in their heads, and uh, I can't say that's bad, but I, it it didn't.
0: I didn't like it. Well, and there was. I mean, I, I remember that period. There was that very clear divide of the people who had commercial ambitions and the people who resented them for it yeah yeah I mean, the, the term sellout you don't hear it that much anymore because it seems like everyone sold out uh, <laughs> but back in the 90s th- that was that was a dividing line
1: yeah and I I have always been skeptical of that thing because I I, I, I know I take a lot of things into the personal Because and, and having known Green Day and and not really being a fan of their music but being a fan of them mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of understood their progress and uh, what they did. And when they were starting to be called sellouts, I'm like, eh, well, if you're doing these small venues, you're booking yourself and more people being turned away than let in, and you have no other mechanism to do anything about that, mm-hmm. you kind of have to make choices if you're going to grow your band. Um, so I did. I was a little bit more skeptical of calling people that because to me, it was more about are you personally doing something musically you don't want to do or wouldn't be doing if you weren't being paid for it that's what to me is like a sellout like, right if are you compromising your are you compromising your if yeah. someone changes their style that to me isn't selling out that's you don't know you don't know their, their mm-hmm. brain you don't know if they just went hey i want to try this or do they go oh this is really popular and this is what my label wants me to do i'm going to do this now see if you don't know that you don't know <laughs> but people were, took it demeaning, to meaning jumping to a major label. And I can, I understand that. We were never interested in that because we thought we'd
0: lose more power than we were willing to lose. Um. Again, the podcast is Jughead's Basement. Going back to Screeching Weasel, I, I think it's easy for a lot of interviewers, myself included, to talk about the acrimony between you and Ben Weasel. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the good. Like mm-hmm. When you look back on those days, you guys in a van doing what you did what stands out as like a great memory what made it fun for you
1: i felt like we were with brothers and ben and i used to always talk about uh even in school being like the underdogs like we didn't want to be the people that stuck out and were popular we wanted to be the underdogs and there were so many times when we were when i would look at him and see that like we did a I don't know, we, we were in Maine or somewhere, one of those famous clubs where the guy owns a shotgun and keeps it behind the bar. It was one <laughs> of those places. It was either St. Louis or Maine or somewhere. I don't remember where. But, like, three people showed up. And, uh, and I, you know, and I remember looking at him and going, well, let's just put on an amazing show. And it was one of the best shows we've ever done. And that was that, I think that was that feeling of being the underdog. Like next time we come, it's going to be an audience. And and for Weasel, it did work that way. Like it, it really did build an audience with that sort of power of, uh, of us saying to ourselves, we're the underdogs.
0: And isn't that what you did that night? Isn't that strong advice for any artist or musician? The three people who see you may have friends who they'll bring the next yeah, time. Like exactly. you, you have to win everyone over. And sometimes it's three people at a time. Sometimes it's a full room.
1: That is true. I, I, I I think that's the way to do it with integrity. I think creativity is a wily beast and you all of a sudden could be an asshole. Can I say that? (laughs) You can, you can be an asshole and then all of a sudden you're, you're signed. So it isn't, it isn't the, the, the golden way to be famous, but it is the golden way to have integrity. I think is to stick out, enjoy those shows, uh, enjoy those fans, get to know them and then they'll bring people next time.
0: When I had vapid in the car, I suggested that my brain hurts might have been a high water mark for the band. I don't know that he agreed agreed with me. What do you think?
1: I I go you know, I, I don't like doing those top ten things but every once in a while I'll go through my head and they, they change a little bit. Um, I would say it's the most consistent record. I think it's like it's the one that I could listen to from beginning to end the easiest. Uh, ben will say like uh, anthem because he became a better writer he he believes during that time period and it has like every night which i think is one of the best songs we mm-hmm. ever wrote and then sometimes i think it's bogota because that th- that shows the excitement of creating a new style you know if it, it you can tell that record goes from hardcore to to uh, pop punk like that and that record has become like the staple like a record that kids in high school buy you know
0: <laughs> if there was a moment in Screeching Weasel history when it seemed like things might start leaning towards the next level of commercial success. I mean, Bark Like a Dog was the moment where we all kind of thought it might happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, we had the Cool Kids, which was on Q101. But we were just, we weren't built that way. And, uh, I mean, part of that, a big part of it has been, uh, is anxiety and unwillingness to do things that a band needs to do to make that happen, like touring, you know, consistently. So I kind of, uh, I had feelings it wasn't going to happen, but that record was, it had the intention of, of such a thing. Yes. I mean, it's hard to believe that we, we were, we were like a low seller on fat records and, but we were one of the most popular bands, but yet it didn't show in numbers. So I don't understand that. Really.
0: Back in the late nineties, we started to become aware of emo. We collectively as, as a culture. Mm-hmm. The word had existed for a while. I don't think it was ever as front and center at that point until you guys put out the album. Emo? Yeah. Well, the, the, the word emo was around, you know. Oh, for were, sure. I mean, Sunny Day Dance. Real Estate. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, this... Was Ben's antagonistic response to an emo movement that was forming, which is kind of always it's like you material issue, what's a material issue, whatever band. A lot of his driving force is antagonism towards something that's m- emerging into the mainstream. And uh, that was saying that we have always been doing emotional music that it's nothing new. That's kind of what that record mm-hmm. was about. And we did it in the most raw emotional way you could do it like we had no rehearsals first takes in the studio only Um, so it was done to the extreme of what emo would be
0: so was the Riverdales not for you
1: I've still never to this day purposely listened to the Riverdales. <laughs> like not not, a, not not once. I've been in a room where uh, no, I, that's not true. Because I actually used one song for uh, when I was reading Weasels in a Box. I I did a song that that Vapid wrote, uh, but then Ben had it removed from my my web page. <laughs> but uh, it was it was hard for me because um, I was the one I was the only one who wanted to continue the band. And, and it broke up over, like, Vapid and Ben not getting along. And then uh, before my eyes, all of a sudden, they were all in a band together. It was very disappointing, very sad. I was very sad for a long time. Uh,
0: you are a multi-platform creator. Uh, you mentioned, your, well, indirectly, your neo-futurist <laughs> work. Um, mm-hmm. And you just mentioned the book. Weasels in a Box, a not-so-musical journey through partially truthful situations <laughs> with 80% fictitious dialogue. Yeah, that's, an, that's a guesstimation. Just pl- <laughs> plausibly fiction. Pla- plausible enough to be fiction. Plausible enough
1: to be fiction. But I've been told by people like Jim Testa, who is the Jersey Beat mm-hmm. longtime scenester, that it's probably one of the most realistic uh, pop-punk experience books he's ever uh, read, which is which was nice to hear.
0: And, and that was probably to some extent a catharsis for you, being able to get that stuff on the page.
1: Yeah, it was. I was writing an article about the Lillingtons, who I had on a label then, and my girlfriend at the time read it and said, this isn't an article about the Lillingtons, this is a book. And it ended up being, yeah, about uh, my relationship, with mostly about my relationship with Ben and also my nonlinear way of thinking, coming coming up against his black and white sort of views of life.
0: And nonlinear thinking is the, probably the best way to write a book. Like, be, as far as the construction of a book, like, as ideas hit, you put them down, and then you kind of put them all in place.
1: Yeah, this one. Uh, yeah, this one is is nonlinear to the to the to the hilt. <laughs> it took seven years to write, and I. Uh... I, I, I love it. I love it. I'm reading it right now because my publisher is putting it out as an audiobook. So I've been reading it. Are you voicing it? Yes, I'm voicing it. Oh, that's it. awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm two thirds of the way through. I didn't realize I had like over 46 voices in that book. So as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, that's another voice I have to come up with.
0: <laughs> I, I did an oral history of the radio station Q101, and someone said, Will you ever do an audiobook of that? Nope. For that reason, <laughs> it's an oral history with like 85 different people. can yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm yeah. not a voice actor. I was, not since
1: I am an actor, I, I'm really enjoying it, but it's taking me a lot longer than I thought it would. So,
0: but that, uh, that's exciting. So it's the it's a totally different way of speaking too, like doing that yeah. narration.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, well, mine is uh, it's interesting because it's first and second person, so a lot of it is actually talking to the reader, which makes it a little easier in my mind. But like I said, it's complicated. It's a challenging it's, way to write. Well, yeah, I would never do it again. I, I, won't, I don't recommend doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it. It is so hard to do a sentence without having you in it every mm-hmm. time. And, and it's, it's really difficult. Yeah. M- what, what, what do you call it? Manually or, or actually technically, it's a very
0: difficult format to write in. So Jughead's Basement, 10 years running. <laughs> yes. Um, what, what do you, how far ahead do you book for this? Or is it kind of seated? The pants.
1: Yeah, it's pretty seated. The pants. I try to now. Now that I'm doing the straight on interviews, I try to do one a week. Uh, And sometimes I'll take a month off, so then I'll I'll store some for the. But I usually tell the guests because I it changes what I'm asking and what Mm -hmm. we're doing if they think it's coming out this week or coming out in a month.
0: For sure. Yeah. Okay. So we we can listen on all the platforms, obviously. And uh, this is this is a side hustle that we really want to see become a, a. front hustle I would I would love it to be a front hustle
1: (laughs) I'm a hustler you know I love the dance so uh, bring on the nightlight
0: (laughs) I I, I've said it before Jughead the more people who do good stuff in the space I think the better we'll all be I I think the better for the better for the medium the better for the way people perceive what we do
1: I agree I and we didn't really get into it a lot but I, I even started reading interview books once again I like to discover things Intuitively, and then I'll go back and see what I didn't learn. I did the guitar, I learned myself, and then I went and looked at books. And and, uh, interviewing is really important, and it is an art. It is an art, and it's not for everybody, but everyone should have the chance to try. It's
0: not for everybody. Exactly. And everyone does it, that podcast, because it's a lot easier than doing a solo show. Uh, But I've learned there are things that other people do that are kind of cringy with podcasts. Yeah,
1: and also uh, it's like... I learned from years and years of watching Ben being interviewed of watching bad interviewers of uh, Asking the questions the surface questions. I just call them, you know, and they don't know how to go off that and and It's I just call it active listening. It's really just a lot of active listening well, right No, now and I'm and self-conscious.
0: Then. Did I do okay? You did do good, yeah. You had a, you had, a, you were going by list, but you were able to do veer from that. Yeah. There, there were things I wanted to hit, and when it came to the subtitle of your book, I knew I couldn't commit that to memory, so I had to refer to that. Yeah, and I actually couldn't help but glance
1: casually. So sometimes when I was finishing a sentence, I actually referenced the thing that was coming
0: up. Oh, well played! <laughs> well played. I feel like we need to keep talking because it's raining and I don't want you to ride home and... Oh, it's... Whatever. You're you're on a bicycle. I don't want you to... I'm
1: not in a hurry, but you don't need to stay for me. It's not bad outside. It
0: it comes and goes. This is very... I'm two minutes away, so it's... Okay, that makes me feel good. All right. Jughead's Basement is the podcast. (laughs) A rich musical history awaits you as you listen to those Screeching Weasel albums. Boogada, boogada, boogada. Fantastic, Uh, as mentioned. My brain hurts. All that stuff. Uh, Bark like a dog. Oh, my God. Um... Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing this.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Um, thanks for having me. On. Thank
0: you for, for sharing a hairy hairy euros with me.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for that. I'm, my, I, my my neighborhood did not come through for you, and I apologize. But it did. But you did. It's a story. The place. It's memorable.
0: It is. Yes. I, I wouldn't have remembered if it was a standard right. euros. But with not the hair yet. in it.
1: Now you can say, "Well, I didn't get a cigarette, but uh, but I got <laughs> <Yeah>. a hair."
0: <laughs> it, it's kind of like the claw game. Sometimes you get the ball. Sometimes you get the stuffed animal. You just never know. All right. Thank you, Jughead. All right. Thank
1: you, James.